0: Hey, my name is Phil Blumberg, and as a member of the Executive Committee of the Helix Center, I'd like both to welcome you to today's panel on translation matters and to tell you some of our future events. Our concluding meetings of of 2015 will be held on December 4th, 5th, and 6th, and will consist of a series of roundtables presented in collaboration with L'Association des Amis de Passage Committee, Freud. These interdisciplinary panels will consist of French and American social scientists, philosophers, psychoanalysts, and literary scholars discussing issues of religious and nationalist extremism, crises in identity formation, and failures in education. Roundtables for 2016 will include a February panel on the meditative state a March panel on genes, computers, and medicine, and a panel on women and genius, which will be held in the spring. We hope you can attend all these events, and additional information about them and other roundtables can be found on the Helix Center website. Now I'd like to turn things over to today's roundtable moderator, Anne-Marie Levine, who will introduce our participants. Anne-Marie Levine lives in New York City, a poet and visual artist who began writing while touring as a concert pianist, she's the author of three books of poetry, Euphoria, Bus Ride to a Blue Movie, and Oral History, as well as an artist's <clears> book <throat> called *Recueil Pour Mieux Sauté. Her work also appears in various journals and in anthologies such as Poetry After 9-11, Literature as Meaning, and Literature After 9-11. She has published essays on Gertrude Stein's politics, on trauma and art, and on context, and has received grants from the NYFA, Puffin, and Vogelstein Foundations for her work. She occasionally performs solo theater pieces based on her poems. She is as well a maker of box art, miniature paintings on wood, and digital prints exhibited throughout the country. Anne-Marie.
1: and welcome. You might think, what am I doing here (laughs) from that that introduction, but I'm on the executive committee too, and this this program was my idea. Um, So I'm going to read you essentially what's on the handout, because sometimes people don't have it or they don't read it, and and people's bios. Does this work? Yes. Okay. I haven't said anything of importance yet. So why is translation, which formerly referred to a set of restricted technical procedures taking place between two languages, now widely understood to be the basis of all human culture? What is it about this dynamic principle of displacement, exchange, and creative renewal that also links it to the exercise of political power and the possession of linguistic literary capital? Why do some still consider it a necessary evil while others regard it as a testimony to the rich diversity of human expression. Because its processes are so pervasive a feature of thought and experience, still no good? Still Closer? My god, sorry. Um, we must ask, on the one hand, does anything escape translation? And on the other hand, we must also ask, is everything ultimately translatable? Translation studies as a field has grown tremendously in the last two decades. This event will focus on translation as a psychic, aesthetic, and cultural phenomenon. We are extremely fortunate to have with us a group of celebrated literary translators and theorists of translation who work in different languages and across genres and periods. Their distinctive insights into this most significant and challenging enterprise will remind us of the countless ways we all live in translation and are subject to its elusive and reverberating implications. So I'll now introduce the uh, participants, and would you please raise your hand when I say your name so that people may identify you. In alphabetical order, David Bellas. Thank you, <laughs> studied modern languages at Oxford and taught French at the universities of Edinburgh, Southampton, and Manchester before moving to Princeton where he is professor of French and comparative literature and director of the program in translation and intercultural communication. He is the author of Romain Gary, A Tall Story, Jacques Tati, His Life in Art, and Georges Perrec, A Life in Words, which was awarded the Goncourt Prize for Biography in 1994. He has translated more than 30 books from French, including Georges Perec's Life, a User's Manual, and novels by Ismail Kadare. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. The winner of the inaugural (laughs) Man Booker International Prize in 2005. Bellis' essay on translation, Is That a Fish in Your Ear? Translation and the Meaning of Everything, was shortlisted for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. He's currently writing a book about Victor Hugo and Les Miserables. Bella Brodsky, thank you, is Professor of Comparative Literature at Sarah Lawrence, where she teaches courses in world literature slash global writing, translation studies, autobiography, and literary and cultural theory. She's the co-editor of Lifelines, Theorizing Women's Autobiography, a special issue of Comparative Literature Studies on Narrative and Trauma, and author of Can These Bones Live?, Translation, Survival, and Cultural Memory. A special issue she is co-editing of Translation on Memory and Translation in Language and Culture is forthcoming in 2016. Additionally, she's published articles on gender and translation, translating theory, and cultural untranslatability. <coughs> Suzanne Jill Levine translated Mundo Cruel, Stories by Luis Negrón, which won the 2014 Lambda Prize for Fiction, editor of the Penguin Paperback Classics of Jorge Luis Borges's Poetry and Essays, and translator of canonical Latin American writers such as Guillermo Cabrera Infante, Julio Cortazar, Manuel Puig, Severo Sarduy, and Adolfo Bioy Cazares. She has received many honors, including NEH, NEA, Guggenheim, Rockefeller Fellowships and Grants, and most recently received the Penn Award in 2012 for Jose Donoso's The Lizard's Tale. Director of Translation Studies and Professor at the University of California in Santa Barbara. She's the author of The Subversive Scribe, Translating Latin American Fiction, and of the literary biography, Manuel Puig and the Spider Woman, His Life in Fictions. She's currently translating Eduardo Lalo's La Inutilidad for the University of Chicago Press. Marc Polizzati's books include Revolution of the Mind, The Life of Andre Breton, The Collaborative Novel S, L'Otriamon Nomad, Luis Buñuel's Los Olvidados, and Bob Dylan, Highway 61 Revisited. (laughs) (laughs) His articles and reviews have appeared in The New Republic, The Wall Street Journal, Art News, The Nation, Parnassus, Partisan Review, Book Forum, and elsewhere. The translator of over 40 books from the French, including works by Flaubert, Patrick Modiano, Marguerite Duras, André Breton, Raymond Roussel, and Jean Echenoz, he directs the publications program at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Michel Woods is the author of Kafka Translated, How Translators Have Shaped Our Reading of Kafka. Censoring Translation, Censorship Theater, and the Politics of Translation, and Translating Milan Kundera. She's currently editing a book of essays on literature and translation, authorizing translation. She's co-editor of a new book series for Bloomsbury, Literatures, Cultures, Translation. Half Irish and half Czech. She has written several articles on the translation of Czech and Irish literature and film. She's also translated work by young Czech writers published in Words Without Borders. Woods graduated from Trinity College, Dublin, and was a a Fulbright Fellow at Columbia University here in New York, and an IRCHSS Government of Ireland Fellow at Dublin City University. (laughs) She's an Associate Professor of English at SUNY New Paltz, where she loves to teach as much dark and funny Central European literature as she can get away with. (laughs) So, welcome. I'm going to ask... Uh, uh, who wrote the description of our program, to begin by amplifying a bit on that and telling us something about her own work and ideas. Thanks.
2: Thank you very much, Marie. Uh, I think this is a wonderful opportunity to hear people um, talk about something, as I did say in the description, that a lot of us take for granted and that many of us lament about in the sense that uh, much translation goes uh, by way of, how should I put this? Uh, there's a, there is a very well-known book by um, a translator and translation theorist named Lawrence Venuti, And it's called The Translator's Invisibility. Uh, that's something that many people who um, are aware of translation uh, worry a lot about, the extent to which translation uh, takes place sort of behind the scenes and doesn't get the credit that it deserves. And yet, uh, as I try to suggest, it is probably one of the most powerful instruments we have. And uh, it works for us, but also against us if we um, don't pay attention to uh, how it works and what its implications are. And there are a lot of asymmetries attached to translation in terms of politics and uh, cultural politics, for sure. And um, Probably today, those are some of the controversies that uh, uh, plague academics. One of the other very current issues that people are concerned about is transla- uh, you know, untranslatability versus translatability, the kinds of things one might take for granted, but in fact, one should pay more attention to. So um, I'm really thrilled because we have a phenomenal group here. Uh, they represent remarkable expertise and experience, and they draw from a range of exper- from a range of experiences and genres, as I said. Um, I'm the only person here, besides Anne-Marie, who does not translate. That's my conceit. I just theorize about it. Um, in fact, I'm an awful translator, I realize. Um, I teach translation studies, and uh, I think I'm quite good at comparing translations and what I, perhaps I would uh, say, comparing their vices and their virtues. But somehow I get um, overwhelmed by the, not the complexities, but the ambiguities and the seeming insurmountable challenges that translation brings. So I'm in awe of translators, I really am. And since uh, for most of us, in fact, a good bit of the world comes to us via, via translation, we do really have to trust translators. So um, one of the questions I'm always interested in is, you know, how do things get retranslated? How do translators come to become translators in the first place? Um, I grew up in a multilingual household, a child of refugees, so translation was sort of in the air and, you know, a part of everything. But that doesn't necessarily explain what intrigues scholars um, who end up dedicating. A tremendous amount of their time, and are very generally very poorly paid for it to translation and yet the most important legacy we have, I would argue, is you know what translators you know give us. Um, so I'm always looking for different uh, axes or different intersections with translation, and if there's a danger, it's probably that i um, don't attend as much to you know, the technical aspects of translation as I do to the large metaphorical <clears throat> implications of translation. And you know, there's a kind of danger that comes with seeing translation everywhere, because then, of course, as we all know, the most important thing really resides in the details. Uh, one loses sight of those micro aspects of translation. So it's that balance, that dynamic tension, that I think um, we'll be addressing today. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I'm going to start off asking David something that's always bothered me. Um, how, why and how did you come to this title of "Is there a fish in your yes. ear"?
3: <laughs> well, not only why did I come to it, but why did the publisher not throw it out? Uh, it's a very bizarre title, in especially in America. Um, um, the, uh, the first draft of this book, actually, um, until really quite late stage, was called The Truth About Translation. Um, I mean, what a absurd thing to claim, um, but it was always thought of as a provisional title, a working title, until we got nearer to the end of the book. Yeah, well, it is actually what I want to say, but then to say it effectively, you can't say that's what you're saying. If you see
4: <laughs> um,
3: people are smarter than that. Um, and, um, well, it was getting near time to go to press, and we still hadn't got a title, and so I went for a walk around the block. Um, and, you know, there's a uh, a radio serial that was very famous. of uh, It's a spoof science fiction serial. It was very famous in the UK long ago, when I was young, which is very long ago, um, uh, in which um, the problem of intergalactic communication is solved by what's called the oddest invention in the universe, and which uh, there are lots of jokes about it being proof of the non-existence of God, because God would never have invented anything as so useful as this thing called the Babel fish, which is the thing, fish you stick in your ear and uh, enables you uh, to understand via telepathic communication whatever it, any other being in the universe might be wishing to communicate. Um, it's very sort of famous, and lots of websites and automatic translation machines have, have taken it up and, and, and you know, are called Babelfish or Babel or something. Um, and so it just occurred to me that uh, that's the problem. I mean, um, it's a joke in the radio serial, But actually, lots of people think that that's what we need. That's what it ought to be. That we ought to have some device, some little key. You switch on and it tells you, you and then we could get rid of all these annoying people called translators. And indeed, all the approximation and difficulties that there are. Um, And so, you know, no. (laughs) Uh, It can't be a fish in your ear. There never will be available fish. So that's how I thought of the title. You know, is that efficient? To which the answer, it invites the answer, no, it is not. It's a translator. And that's what my book is about. So that's how I came to the title. Um, uh, the, it, it, I was, this book was written uh, or was t- taken up initially by a UK publisher. And so that worked for the UK because everybody knows The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It works in German too, where The Hitchhiker's Guide is sort of part of the culture. Um, but uh, although it does have a cult following in the U.S., it's not nearly as commonly known. And I was really surprised that the U.S. publisher, who happened to be British, uh, didn't actually know that about America and just kept the British title in the United States. So there we are. <laughs> in French and in Spanish, it's called something rather different. Oh,
2: that's interesting. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Could translation
3: you... problem right there? Oh, fabulous. Translating this book into French and Spanish was really interesting I was exceedingly lucky to have a genius translator in uh, both places (coughs) and I would say that the French edition is, is definitely to be preferred to the English version and how involved were you? sorry? how involved were you? Uh, with the French one, very much. Yeah. There was, um, I mean, he was in charge, but I, 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 yeah, well, I, I think wor- worked on everything, and we worked out some of the games. and um, so we, all, all the examples are reversed, if you should come I in and take it. Mm-hmm. So we found other examples in French to go from English to French rather than French to English. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did some wonderful back translations. He retranslated the translation of Marot back into French, and it, it, it's the best of all. <laughs> <laughs> um, So uh, yes, that was um, it was exhausting because I was correcting the proofs to the American edition at the same time, and of course I get my American spelling wrong, uh, but I got the (laughs) French right. (laughs) Uh, But it was a a very um, rewarding and I think creative enterprise, sort of thing to take it back into another language when what it's about is going it's into language. language. And uh, I'm, I'm really, fun. really, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that it got translated, because it seemed to me that for this book to mean what it means, it has to be translated. It just has to be. Um, so there it is.
4: So what was the Spanish translation? <laughs>
3: um, I don't speak Spanish very well. Uh, <laughs> Pez en el higuera. Pez en el, pes en el, el, el higuera.
4: The fish
3: in the fig tree.
4: Oh, okay. and the y- geta, personally. there is
3: a there is a an idiom or a saying about being in the fig tree
4: mm.
3: that my translator explained to me, and <laughs> made it quite funny. Okay, okay, <laughs> You okay. made, it up. Um, <laughs> I think made maybe it up. Maybe he made that one up. <laughs> and the French one is called the fish and the banana tree.
2: Oh, well, that
4: sounds
5: <laughs>
3: good.
2: So that's one of the interesting aspects about translation: is cultural specificity, right? and what doesn't and what isn't translatable across. Even British English and American English. How, but I would like to know how did you first start translating?
3: How did I first start translating?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, uh, there are two answers to that. I mean, one, I studied languages at school uh, um, and at university, and then taught languages at university in a culture where the teaching of modern languages is still very much based on the teaching of classics, and where the practice of translation prose and verse was actually, but that was the subject, what you did. Um, but uh, pedagogic translation is one thing. Uh, I started, as it were, translating books for a completely different reason when I, I read uh, Perek's Life of Users Manual and was uh, <coughs> so struck by it. Uh, I, for the first time, I thought, you know here is a book. I really would like this to exist in English. I really would like to share this with my father and other people who don 't speak French and so um, that was the first adventure, and I became a translator in order to translate that book well, in, in the process of translating that book and again, I was really very fortunate i mean I'm a very lucky person that i mean it 's in some sense' it's a very difficult book to translate. But precisely for that reason, you learn an awful lot about translating by tackling that one first. Mm-hmm. And sort of when you've done that one, you sort of feel, well, you can take off. <laughs> um, so that, that's how I got into it. I didn't. I didn't have any. It wasn't anything like a family background or a ha- or anything. And in fact, it was really a way of uh, striking out against my environment because, well, I'm sure you know, Britain's a very snobbish place, and Oxford's even more snooty and. In amongst professors of literature and language in that environment, translation was really rather looked down upon. Yes. It was the sort of thing you weren't supposed to do. Um, uh, it didn't get you any brownie points or didn't count towards research output. And I, I was at a stage in my life where I felt a little bit what's the word? Um, constrained and constricted. But I hadn't remotely worked out why. Well, I didn't have a theory about translation. I just wanted to translate that book mm-hmm. and to say, to hell with you lot. I'm, that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. But to do it, I mean, I didn't do it in university time. I took six months unpaid leave. Did I mean, even in my mind, I was quite a senior person. Even, but it didn't occur to me that a professor at a British university could spend six months translating a book as part of his or her job. That has changed. I mean, mm-hmm. and I'm, and if uh, my career has contributed to that change even 1%, then I'm very happy.
2: Jill, what about you?
4: Well, I mean, this is a very relevant subject that you're bringing up, of course. And uh, um, <clears throat> I was just thinking that, in a way, way before all these wonderful books on translation theories came out, my, my book came out, uh, The Subversive Scribe. And it was actually a book that... Um, that inspired uh Larry Venuti to become a theoretician, actually, so I mean I was actually so the subversive scribe was actually yeah, first going to be called of that history. that's right yeah. <laughs> it was going to be called the invisible scribe, and I said, well, you know why should we you know uh heighten the invisibility let's uh, Let's look at the other side of what translating is, which is Creativity, so that's what the severe subscribe was about. But you're absolutely right. I mean, when we start out as professors, and you're maybe a little ahead of me, but still, in my in my time, uh, uh, to be uh, to be in an academia and to be translating, uh, that was very much looked looked down upon in the
3: modern era. Yeah. Obviously, in the classics. And in philosophy, I mean, that's all they do is yeah. translate old books. They have yeah. got any more to read. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, it was in the modern languages uh, and in literature departments yeah. where that kind of yeah. and, they, and they, they, they actually fear, I think. Oh, as they well. do the fear,
4: and, and like like you, I mean, I started out with an extremely, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, Almost Joycean kind of project, you know, uh, which was Cabrerin Fante. You know, I mean, he's like what, what people would call as in the case of Perec, on the untranslatable. You know? but I it, never
3: use that word. But
4: I I don't use it, you know. And as a matter of fact, Roman Jakobson, with his very thick accent, referred to it as the dogma of untranslatability. So. Yes, we, should, we should take it out of our vocabulary. Absolutely. But anyway, so, I mean, you know, everything, I mean, you could say uh, everything is translatable or untranslatable depending on how you look at it. And so that's really, that's really it. So, but Cabrera Infante. the other thing I, I discovered uh, working with him was that it was basically a translation was a, was a creative act for the writer as well in the sense that writing itself was already, in a sense, a kind of translation. Uh, he was a writer who was well, very much like Nabokov. By, you know, he was bilingual, polyglot. And for him, translating his, his very Cuban, I would say, Havanan novel into English was an opportunity to uh, play with his ideas in English. So it was really uh... the book became uh... truly a creation unto itself the translation and and so as you said you know uh... Again, a similar experience. You know, working with Cabrera Infante was like, you know, having a Ph.D. in translation without having gone through a Ph.D. in translation. So it was, uh, and uh, my first two writers that I worked with, um, him and then Manuel Puig, were just amazingly creative writers and creative translators. So just working with them was was truly, uh, you know, an amazing. An amazing process, and that's why I wrote my book, The Subversive Scribe, to show academe precisely how creative translation was, and also how scholarly it is. I mean, it's, it's a scholarly act, it's a creative act, and it's, it's, it's really at the center, at the core of all literary discussion, truly.
3: Well, well it jolly well should be. I must say that... Um, um, You know, I don't say anything bad about translators in my book, um, on purpose. So I'll say something bad about them now. Well, I mean, most
4: translators aren't as good as us. uh,
3: No, that's right. There there are some really (laughs) awful ones out there. There are a lot, I was just doing some work (laughs) with my students last week uh, on uh, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. And I looked at the available French translations of Great Expectations that you can get to download onto your Kindle. It's a crying scandal. I mean, the French do not have Charles Dickens to read. It's absolutely awful. There are bits missed out. It's bad spelling. There's cuckoo grammar. Uh, they don't know which way the Thames flows. I mean, you know, it, 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 talk about scholarly. Um, uh, you can tell that they've translated <laughs> the beginning of the sentence without looking at the end. You know, because I've been going uh, Um So um, high standards in translation really do matter. Uh, To do it properly is a very scholarly, uh, um, uh, a very learned uh, enterprise as well as a creative one. Um, And um, I think that uh, the people currently working into English in literary translation uh, are totally different from the generations of translators, uh, some generations of translators before us, um, and some of those working into French and no doubt other languages at the moment.
4: Well, it varies. I mean, you know, there were great translators in the past, but, but yes, I know what you mean. I, I, I think, you know, there, I think there are probably sins of a different color now, but, you know, there are yeah. still, still some vices as well as virtues. <laughs>
2: Mark, what about you, you, you? How did you You say vices and point to me. <laughs> 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 I meant virtues. <laughs> How, how did you start translating?
6: Uh, completely by accident. Uh, I was 17, and um, I was living in Paris for a year between high school and, and my first year of university and um, taking courses at, at the University of Nanterre. Uh, you know, as was this little sort of kid among all the third-year college students, and I happened to become vaguely friendly with the professor of this one class, um, and he had us read on the, uh, on the syllabus this experimental novel was part of the Telkel movement at the time. This was the mid-'70s, and it was very fashionable. It was this right. sort of post joycean post-Finnegan's Way, highly experimental kind of literature mm-hmm. around people like Philippe Solers and Roland Barthes was a member of it, and Derrida was a member, you know, sort of that group. Well, there was this one novelist who was much, much less known named Maurice Roche, and um, he was uh, on the syllabus, And the professor, Jean-Louis, said, uh, you know, next week, buy this book, read this book. Maurice Walsh is going to come and speak to the class. I said, all right. So I go out and buy this book, and I read it. And it's just full of the most impossible word games and puns and little pictures and, you know, sort of these weird little jokes and references and cultural references. It just made no sense whatsoever to my poor little 17-year-old brain. And I'm sitting there struggling my way through it in anticipation for the class, thinking, boy, You'd have to be really insane to try to translate something like this. You know where the story's going, by the way. Um, so the day comes, Maurice comes, he gives the spiel. I can barely follow anything of what he's saying. But afterward, I went up to say something to the professor. And he said, you know, he knew that I lived completely across Paris. He said, I have a car. I can give you a ride, you know, at least into town. We'll get you closer to home. I said, fine. He said, but Maurice is coming with us all right so here I am at 17 sitting in the back of this car and there's this you know, published writer who's about 50 years old and he was a friend of all these people and you know had published about four or five books sitting in the front seat and I'm kind of sweating bullets and uh, along the way we stopped at a little cafe for whiskey because it had been about 10 minutes since Maurice's last one and that was about the limit <laughs> And I found myself sitting across this cafe table from him and my, the professor went off to make a phone call or something I thought, well, I've got to say something because I look like an idiot otherwise. And the only thing I could think of to say, of course, was, gee, how interesting it would be to translate your book.
2: <laughs>
6: Which I figured he would just let go, but his, you know, his face snapped <laughs> up and his eyes opened up and he said, great idea, why don't you do it? I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we got back in the car, we headed to Paris, you know, so you could drop me off anywhere. And he turns around and said, no, 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 I'm having a dinner party tonight, why don't you, why don't you join us, why don't you come? Okay. So we go to his apartment, and there are Roland Barthes and, uh, you know, Philippe wow. Solaire and Julia Kristeva and, uh, Julie Christopher and all, all his pals uh, eating, eating fried chicken off a paper plate. So I never forgot this. I'm watching television. I thought, hmm, this is what intellectuals do when they're, you know, when they let their head down. But, um, but he kept coming back during the course of the evening and saying, so you're going to do it. You're going to translate my book. All right. So I had you know, in my remaining six months in Paris and in my, my inaugural year there, I, I dutifully went home and I started working on it and it made of course, you know, it was a terrible, terrible translation. I mean it was just awful. And you know, I, I, I happen to agree with you that there's no such thing as an untranslatable <laughs> book, but you wouldn't know it by looking at the translation <laughs> that I just do that one. <laughs> so but you know, over the next six months I, I um, dutifully went back and we periodically get together every few weeks and go over it and you would go over the pages and make corrections and, you know, the bug bit and that's and I've been, I've been a criminal ever since. <laughs> that
2: is a great story. Um, and you don't teach. Um,
6: I do not. Um, I, I flirted with that idea for about ten minutes at, at grad school at Columbia and uh, it took one weekend of, of a little bit of soul searching and that was the end of that. So...
4: I don't, I don't blame you. I mean, I, I mean, basically, if I had inherited money, I wouldn't have been teaching either. But no, well, I, well, sadly, I'm still
6: waiting for the inheritance to come in. But, uh, but uh, no, I, I chose a different, a different poison, which was publishing.
2: And Michelle, last but not least, because right. we are going in alphabetical right. order. Okay. Yeah, um, actually, I
5: really identified with what you said because I actually got interested in translation studies before uh, you know I translated anything, and it actually put me off translating, or trying to translate for years, I think. Um, but actually, I got interested in the subject of translation because of a non-translation, which was I, I decided to do my PhD on Milan Kundera, the Czech writer, and as I was kind of finding my way, I discovered that he'd written all these poems that had never been translated, and I was like, wow, that's interesting. He was a very famous writer. This was the early 90s and uh, um, uh, when I read his poetry I totally understood why he didn't want to translate or doesn't want it translated um, but it got me interested of course Condor is a very controversial author when it comes to translation, he's written very publicly against translators and against his own translators um, and I got really interested as to why and whether what he was saying in his in his essays were was valid, you know, whether um, he was right or wrong in the way he approached translation, and uh, I got very interested in. in his argument was uh, some language isn't translatable, and he wrote that in his novels. He writes about untranslatable words, but he's really interested in what is translatable. And for him, it was a certain aesthetic style, a certain, you know, uh, in his case, syntax, punctuation. Uh, and uh, repeated words, you know, important words in passages and through through books, and so that's how I got interested in translation, and I wrote my PhD on it. Um, the first translation that I did was um, something again, like I think like everyone else has said, I read something and I loved it. I just I loved the voice. Um, I really identified with it, and um, it was a Czech writer and caricaturist from the 20s who decided to wander around Paris and knock on all these famous writers' doors and interview them. So he knocked on Joyce's door and said... I, Joyce wasn't doing any interviews at this point in Paris and he went in and he said I'm, I'm going to translate Finnegan's Wake into Czech <laughs> and Joyce was like okay and they have this, this discussion and then a translation lesson uh, and Joyce he literally uh, Hoffmeister said we sat in his in his flat and uh, um, it was as if the school bell had rung and the master had his cane above us because <laughs> Joyce was saying okay here's a passage from Annalifia Plurabel how would you translate this into Czech and Hoffmeister is you know, you know sweat coming out you know doing it um so it was this marvelous interview and he also do these caricatures of Joyce as well so um but I realized so I just did it it was this kind of you know but I realized I felt like I was a terrible translator and the big shock for me who you know I'd been very proud of my writing and my use of English but that was the hardest thing it was not translating knowing how to translate or what to translate a particular czech word but it was my english kept feeling very um just this kind of um bucket of poverty (laughs) you know i couldn't come up with any a, a beautiful language that i felt justified the voice that i was reading you know and that put me off translation for a few years until i did a couple of translations last year but um it's difficult it's it's amazing you don't realize how hard and it goes back to this idea of the of the translator being a wonderful reader mm. and uh, someone who's who's erudite and learn it, I think you know i don't know
4: it's interesting that he he brought up Anna Olivia Plurabelle because I think he translated that into Italian he with did. the Italian translator isn't that the he only did. section that he actually translated? yeah,
5: I think yeah. so, and it was the only one that was ever translated into Czech, so uh, this guy no. Hopmeister, yeah. did it, and yeah. uh, I think someone tried to translate it, but unfortunately died before he finished the
2: translation <laughs> probably killed by the translation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, the fact is that, that that generally people translate into their mother tongues. Yeah. Right? But have any of you ever translated into one of the other transla- tr- into one of your other translating languages? I've done a little. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. how hard is that? What is that like?
6: Oh, it's miserable. Um, <laughs> because you, you know, I mean, it depends on what it is, of course. But um, you know, if it's just a regular document, sure, I can I can easily do a you know a business letter to French and, and feel like it, it's perfectly accurate, but. Um, no, I had to do actually some of my own work at one point uh, no. from English into French, and that was a real revelation because you realize that not only do you, you know, not only is there more <laughs> encoded in the actual text than even you realize when you wrote it, but right. um, but then that the the limits of your other language are, are much closer in than you thought they were and it's, it's kind of a humbling experience um,
4: that is very true you know, I had the similar experience yeah. translating you know some academic papers mm-hmm. or, or books into into Spanish and you know I, I thought I could do a better job than the actual translators but still it was a, a far cry from what you know well it
6: is and know, I think you know. the thing is that you know there is an instinct that yeah. you that yeah. you fall back on and that yeah. you know once once if you feel comfortable as a translator and I think you know the best of us sort of don't do it by theory we don't do it by... you know you just yeah. do it um, and, I mean, not to include myself in that, but, you know, I think, I think that's at least the way I feel most comfortable, is to, right. is to just sit down and you do it. You don't think about the approach that you're taking. You just right. try to make it make sense right. and try to find the voice. And and that voice in, in a translation is really, a, a, you know, it's a blend. It's mm-hmm. always going to be the original author's voice and yours, And which is why no two translations will be alike, which is why a translation with any personality you know we always say we're trying to capture the author's voice, but that 's nonsense. I mean the fact is that doesn't exist you know really what we 're trying to do if if the translation has any punch to it at all is to is to meld our two voices in a way yes. that's sympathetic and resonant right. and doesn't betray the original text but just to sweep around to what I was saying you, you know it's very hard to have that unless you're really, really bilingual, but almost like from birth, you know, maybe in a mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, or, or Beckett, you know, or someone like that. I mean, it's very, very hard to, and even Beckett, uh, it's very hard to have that kind of instinct, I think, in, in another language, no matter how well you've learned it. You can, you can, you can have it for the, you know, in, in terms of the listening capacity and, you know, and then retransmit it into your native tongue, but, um, but I think it's very hard to do it in the other way.
4: I think translators have musical ears, you know, the yeah. really good ones. And yeah. so, I mean, and I think that there's a way in which there, as you say, it's a very intuitive knowledge of language, but I think that, uh, you know, some translators are in, you know, even though they're not native like sp- Spanish or mm-hmm. French or whatever, they're, that they really have a talent because. Yeah. It's, a, it's just sort of like, uh, you're like a musician in some mm-hmm. form, I think, but, uh, but I, I understand what you're saying.
6: I, I can think of very um, few, I mean, I'm you know, sure that there's more you know, you, you, that you, you can know. think of, uh, I can think of very few who really can go in both directions mm-hmm. equally well.
3: Yeah, the demand in English for very natural flowing uh, text is, 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 is very high at mm-hmm. the moment. It's our convention that you only translate into mm-hmm. your so-called mother tongue, your dominant tongue, or your tongue language of education. Mm-hmm. But that's not always been the case. I mean, the history of mm-hmm. translation is full of really important examples the other way around. I mean, right. the very first translation of Homer into Latin, which is the first translation in the Western was done by a Greek slave, not by a Roman. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, our, con- our whole tradition of literature, literary translation has for hundreds of years is L2 translation, translation mm-hmm. out Mm-hmm. Rather than translation in. But in the English speaking world of the last century, that's changed. But um, the people that we, it, 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 this situation is really acutely difficult for are writers in smaller European and non European languages where there is no established culture of translation into English, where there just aren't any um, English translators. And so, you know, if you're a Bulgarian short story writer, you're almost obliged to learn English and to put up sample translations of your own on the web. And of course everybody laughs at them Um, because, you know, they're not native English. Um, But how else are they going to get to here? How else are they going to get out and beyond? And into German too. There's quite a lot of L2 translation by uh, writers in Central Europe for whom German is the interlanguage. Um, so I think we should be a little bit more, um, a little bit easier about people writing in English, mm-hmm. even though it's not their native tongue. Because without that, there are there are many parts of the world that just aren't going to get a voice no, 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 in no, no, no. one go. Faulting no, no, no.
6: no, no, no. it, and and I don't think which is so contradictory. What I'm saying is that you know I don't know that. I mean.
4: I think the English translators
6: is, here are bilingual. You could write, you could do a translation into Spanish that would be more than respectable. Well, you could do one into French. So, could I? but who, I don't know that we'd have quite that level of, of 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 finesse that we like to bring into.
4: into, I mean, into well, our... but think language. of writers who. I mean, I think English actually has been pretty receptive to writers, foreign writers writing in English and. I mean, think of well, Conrad. You know, I mean, mm. uh, and 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 many others. And, and you know, his, his people would say, well, Conrad is unreadable, but just the same, no, not really. uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's published.
3: <laughs> I think he's not very readable, right. but that's he wasn't. Tra- but he wasn't translated. That's right. <laughs> now,
4: Bokov,
3: in particular, was, yeah. a post- well, he was a to Conrad own. on grounds that he couldn't write English. That's right. That's and right. A real rich irony, you know. That's right. A, yeah. a Russian <laughs> slagging off a Pole mm-hmm. for his bad English. Yeah. Um, yes.
4: Yeah. No. 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 Bokov. Oh, yeah. He was. Well, he really—he was very misogynist when it, when it came to the famous woman translator from of, of, of all the Russian literature. Oh, Constance, Constance, Constance Ganesha, 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 yeah. yeah, I mean, he, uh, the, yeah, he, you know, the handmaiden idea really got very heavy in his hand on that one. Yep.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> Not a very generous man. No. Hmm.
2: I, I have a
1: question, if I may. Inter- can you hear me? No. No. Yeah. Now, now we now. can. Yeah. Okay. If I may interrupt, what? Um, what about experimental writing, which you mentioned as your as your as your first yeah, my, my so, of Fire. Yeah. there are, there is a lot of experimental writing probably in every language. Um, what, do you have, a, do you have a, um, a theory about how to, go, I mean, how much leeway do you give yourself? Obviously you, you can't be, you can't be literal. People play word games and so on. What, can you say something about that? And the other thing, which is related, is that uh, Beckett, for instance, did a lot of his own. Godot was written in French. He, I'm sure, he translated it himself into English, um, and he helped in the German translation. But there were a lot of puns and and word games, and he changed them for the different languages so they would rhyme and they would work and this and that. What do you think about all of that? <laughs> How far? He's doing his own work. But how far would you go in a difficult work? You, you, you're looking
4: you anybody, <laughs> what would you she do? look at you because at you're me. a nice-looking yeah. fellow. Uh, but anyway, I, uh, but, anyway, but uh, <laughs> no. Um, I... You can answer, but I was just thinking that uh, Ezra Pound said that every great age of literature is a great age of translation, and he was a very experimental poet. So I think you know he's sort of a model of this of this concept of, of translation as uh, you know sort of uh, really at home with, with with experiment in that sense. But you
6: know. yeah, uh, well, uh, like, I mean, I think translation is a creative act, and. Um, I think that we can overestimate the difficulty of its quote-unquote experimental text because, in fact, all it's doing is underscoring or maybe, you know, sort of t- turning up the contrast on the process that happens in any translation. and when I think about the books that I've done, I mean, Maurice Roche was, you know, yes, he was very experimental, and it took a lot of, there were a lot of brain teasers and things I had to kind of puzzle out and find equivalents for, and, you know, puns that had to be recreated so that they would make sense in English. I mean, all of that. And that's, you know, that's fun, but it's a crossword puzzle. Um, The really, really, for me, the really hard translation is the one that, from a text that sounds just very straightforward and natural. I mean, I Mm -hmm. would much rather, I find it much easier to translate Maurice Roche than I do Patrick Modiano. Mm-hmm. because the mm-hmm. language is so clean and right. so pure and so natural, and it just flows so well mm-hmm. that you could drive yourself crazy just working it over and over and over and over to try to get the, right. you know, to try to get that same naturalness of tone, because that's really what it's about. Mm-hmm. In Maurice's case or, in, you know, in someone like that, it's about the word games. and if you're, you know, you want to substitute cleverness for cleverness, that's just a matter of sitting there and kind of puzzling it through and, you know, it's the kind of thing you do while you're standing on the subway. It's like, how do I do? Okay, got it, got that pun, you know, and then mm-hmm. you move on. Um, but it's, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean to, to downplay it, but it's, we, it's a yeah. different kind of work and yeah. it's a, you know, as I said, they really are brain teasers as opposed to that very almost ineffable, ineffable Quality of the prose and of the tone that that you're trying to grasp, and that can just really drive you crazy. Yeah, I mean, idea. the
4: spoken language in the sense also. I mean, that concept. I uh, yeah. I mean, um, in my book, the Subversive Scribe, I, I I begin with what what is the easiest, which is puns, mm-hmm. and then I go to spoke the spoken words, you know, uh, spoken language. I mean, you know, I mean, for example, you know, in Spanish, you can change you can translate the word pendejo into jerk, but you're missing out on mm-hmm. a lot of fun things about that word that you're not getting in jerk. Mm-hmm. Although, you're getting other things. But, yeah. you know, yeah, but, but again, but the spoken language, how do you translate that? And that was what fascinated me about translation, how to bring a voice into the other language, you know, a spoken
6: do you, voice. Do you ever try to imagine yourself in that situation, but in an English context? You know, so that if you were, whatever led the character to say, you know, then, then right. what would lead you to say Whatever yeah, it is that you would right. say, you know, yeah. and, and would you say jerk or would you say you asshole or would you know whatever so I, is that you're exactly, yeah. and it yeah. and
4: it really depends upon the feeling that yeah. you're trying to yeah. create, and of course you know a translator is in a way an actor, so you have to sort of feel you know what the what yeah. the word is mm-hmm. you know going to works best yeah. in that moment, but but you're absolutely right about that. I mean, uh, I think that those are more challenging
3: yeah. you Well, know. Well yes, can I make two comments on that point yeah. because. Um, a few years ago, I translated a, a French detective story into English, um, and I obviously, I had to invent an English f- form of speech for him. Yes. And then I stopped, and I went for another one of my walks around the block. I thought, this is crazy. This is a French detective walking down the Boulevard Saint-Germain. What's he doing talking to himself in English? <laughs> and it made me realize that, you know, that even the simplest text is metafictional when it's translated. It, right. it, and we seem happy to accept this kind of totally ridiculous idea right. that Scandinavian detectives talk to each other in English. Mm-hmm. Um, but there we are. That's the genre we're working in, and it's all, we're already one above. It's already a complete invention and totally implausible.
7: Mm-hmm.
3: But the, another book that I did, and which is in your bookshops now, it's just appeared... Um, <laughs> is a problem of uh, at the opposite end of the scale. It, it's in very straightforward French, and I hope in very straightforward English. It's uh, a narrative of a French publisher who suddenly encounts, encounters the iPad and uh, all that sort of thing and the end of print book. Um, and it consists of 36 chapters. Um, and that's fine, and it's all eminently translatable. There's nothing ineffable about it. But the, the first six chapters consist each of 7,500 uh, characters and spaces. The second uh, set of six chapters consists of each of 6,500 um, characters, including spaces and so on, down to 2,500 for the last six. So you have, I think, 36. Yes, that's six by six. Uh, That's a poem. That's a sestina. And yes, indeed, it does rhyme. The same six words occur in alternation at the end of each chapter according to the exact pattern laid down in the 12th century by Arnaud Daniel, the um, spiral sestina order. Um... And so it was, it was really fun, I mean, fiddling around with it so you could get the same rhymes and uh, adapting the English so that you have exactly the same number, the right number, 180,000 characters and spaces over all in the novel divided in exactly that way. <laughs> um, and then you know, it goes off to the typesetter, the copy editor, who puts words back in, and you take it out, um, or, or tries to alter my punctuation, and so we have lots of fun battles, just keeping it exactly as it is. And then it goes to the typesetter, and of course, the way that uh, Microsoft Word counts characters and spaces is not absolute. It has specific parameters. And the way that the big Unix typesetting machine that produces um, real printed books, uh, types, characters and spaces is slightly different. Uh, In particular, the long dash, which Microsoft (laughs) Word counts as one character, it's an M dash. and It's actually three N dashes in real typesetting. So... And you, you end up thinking this is completely silly. The, the whole the constraint is arbitrary. It's whatever you want it to be. Right. Um, does it matter? And who the hell is going to notice? And indeed, nobody has noticed. There have been reviews of this book. Nobody has mentioned what, <laughs> the was, extraordinarily was neat way in which it. Um, <laughs> because you know, it's it's an invisible thing. You can't see it. Right. And of course, unless you've got it in word document, for even in PDF, you can't do it. You can't find out, you can't check so why was I wasting my time trying to <laughs> write under constraint, you know, to translate an experiment, I might have well just have translated what it said um, the, the, the interesting thing, or the only sort of curious thing about it is that French uh, over any lengthy text uh, generally takes rather more character spaces to say the same thing as English does, so translating it into quite sort of um, stylistically appropriate, and that's to say, fairly concise English, uh, produced a text that was shorter than the French. And under this constraint, you know, I have to inject some wordage mm-hmm. back in. Mm-hmm. So it's great fun. I was able to incorporate in the English edition a number of things that the author had to leave out.
5: But I think this yeah. is what's interesting. What fascinates me is listening to this as a literary scholar. Is that you know, and what's increasingly interested me in, in my work as a, as a scholars, thinking about what translators do and their kind of awareness of form. And how that is innately connected to meaning, right? And in in everyday reviews, the reviewer is going to talk about the characters, the plot, and so on. And and I think, especially in the Anglo-American world, which is very, very into kind of realist fiction at the moment, and very kind of you know (coughs) naturalistic-sounding prose, and there isn't that awareness of well, actually, something more is going. So there's something deeper. There's a texture to this to this novel or to this poem, more so in poetry, but not in a novel. You know, people aren't prepared to think about that. But I think you know when you're looking, when you're studying what translators do it gets really interesting when you see it's always the problematic bits of the text that you go hang hey, on something's at work here and what choices the translator made you know uh, and sometimes bad translations can be as revelatory as good translations right sure. yeah. because where yeah. they've gone wrong or something seems really awkward there's something interesting happening and there's 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 a wall there that they've had to try and overcome and that's where you get into some of these interesting parts of the 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 structure of the novel, the texture of the novel, um, which is something that I, I always try and teach in my classes because mm-hmm. students are so used to want to, they want a book club type class where they talk about the characters and <laughs> themes right. and, you know, but you're trying to get them to see that great literature. There's always more to it than that, right? There's 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 something there's something working at a deeper level and that's what translators have to really get. A good translator has to really get and I think euphony and sound and so on is so important to well, that. I think it, yeah. it
6: also, you know, I, I think the first question that you have to ask yourself when you're setting something is what, you know, what is the what is the list, and what is the, the order of priorities of, of what's right. important? You know, and it could be humor. It could be, you know, in the case of this, that there were exactly a certain number of characters <laughs> yeah. and spaces on a particular page. You know, it, it really could be any number of things. It could be the you know, the strict meaning. It could be, uh, you know, a technical definition. I mean, it's any any number of registers, and the thing is that no one text even stays in that register. It, it's going, right. it's constantly moving, uh, you know, from 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 register to register. So that you're always trying to identify. What's the primary thing that I need to convey in this particular passage or this particular sentence? Um, you know, what's the conceit or what's the what's the effect? And and then keeping sort of following it, you know, and, and, and constantly keeping track.
4: Yeah, right. one of the most difficult things to translate in some ways is parody in the sense that parody presupposes a shared, you know, a shared convention. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're you know, if you're making fun of something but you know, or, or, you know, you're referring to it, and people aren't aware of what you're referring to, then it's, it's hopeless. And that was some of the problems I encountered, like, for example, with Manuel Puig, you know, uh, uh, the, the Argentine writer, who, who basically, uh, his his books are written in Argentine to the sense that, yeah, and, and it, it, the tango is, is such an important referent, and uh, and also the humor is created by a certain campy relationship with all this material. So, you know, if you... If you repeat the exact words of the tango, the English reader is going to say, "Well, that looks like bad poetry. What are you doing there?" Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> so something else has to be done to make that piratical relationship. Uh, so, so yeah.
3: would you, would you, you, did you, did you let yourself? yourself? Well, you <laughs> see now, you see now, now I
4: got some good questions here. Oh, would you, <laughs> oh, yeah. would you let
3: your, t- 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 to cope with that? Would you let yourself well, uh, stoop to a footnote?
4: Uh, uh, well, I didn't I'm stoop not. to a footnote. Did uh, you did uh, stoop to. Footnote. I did not stoop. Mm-hmm. Oh, you did not. Okay. Uh, there was no stooping. No. <laughs> <'Cause he's laughs>
3: It's very odd. I mean, in English literary publishing, you know, footnotes are are banned. I mean, you know, the publisher will say, well, can't do a footnote. But I mean, into German, into French, it's quite common to have explanatory or expansionary footnotes that help you with that.
4: Well, because French and and German are just so scholarly, they have to have footnotes, you know. but I don't know anyway but uh, for example uh, you know Boquitas Pintadas which was Little Painted Lips which mm-hmm. actually could have been translated as Little Painted Lips but at the time we thought Heartbreak Tango was much better because it really captured the feeling of that mm-hmm. world you know and so uh, but in the case of Manuel Puig it was sort of interesting because as, as everybody knows he was such a film junkie that not only was his frame of reference as tangos and popular lyrics but also all these wonderful you know campy Hollywood films so we sort of mixed and mixed in some of that material Mm-hmm. And so you enabled the reader to understand that there was a whole era that was being referred to in a, in a sort of both nostalgic and, and sort of campy way, you know, and, and, and also funny, of course. Funny and tragic at the same time. But I think you were able to, we were able to recreate that world by expanding the context, as it were, to his other areas of references. So that was one example, yeah.
7: I'm
5: wondering what, uh, you know, because uh, when I've been working in the archives, what really opened up translation for me, too, is how much power editors had. Mm. Uh, so a translator, in Condor's case, he, the stuff he blames his translator for was actually his editors, right? Yes. So the translator would hand in a text, and the, one of the editors, she just went, she, the sentences were too long, so she just literally went through and made the sentences shorter, and I wondered what experiences... You, you have had with uh, editors and whether that really makes a difference to how a translator you know, Well,
6: I can say one thing uh, wish, This I gentleman's could. an editor uh, Well, yes,
4: I'm, I'm speaking from both, both sides of my that, mouth That's here. right um, <laughs>
6: But as, a, as my translator hat on um, I had an interesting experience because uh, you know, with Modiano winning the Nobel Prize, all of a sudden all these publishers are, are, are publishing his work and I just did uh, three of them this year, three of his books and two of them are Published by separately by an American house and a British house, same translation, but two two different houses, and they both edited separately, and they which is which is something that I hadn't really run into before. Normally speaking, one would take the lead, and then the other would just simply copy the plates and you know sort of deal with the Americanness or the Britishness, whatever. But in this particular case, because high-profile author, um, both uh, both houses. Are editing or have edited separately, and you end up with these two sets of not only comments and things that people pick up, but also two sets of vocabulary. Because you know, a flat becomes an apartment becomes a flat, and then an elevator becomes right. a lift, and you know, all of these things. And that, you know, fine, I can, I can, I can deal with that. I mean, it seems funny to me because that's not how I speak, and I, I do pay attention to the rhythm of a sentence. And apartment is not quite the same as flat, you know. But um, but you know, one, one, one can manage. Mm-hmm. Where it really became interesting were the expressions and just those little nuggets of language that you don't even think twice about as being specifically American, for example. And and the the British editor would constantly, who was very good um, and you know really went through it extremely carefully and was very respectful, but would come up with these things, you know, saying, "Well, you can't say that." It's like, well, why can't I say that? Because, you know, it's American. Nobody's going to understand. Um, I think a big one was um, uh, a Black Mariah, which actually surprised me. Uh, because, uh, yeah, yeah I, didn't, I didn't know that. Um, you know, so we, we constantly had to sort of find these equivalents. And, and then that led me to go back sometimes and make changes to the U.S. edition because, obviously, I wanted them to be as close as possible, understanding that there are just going to be certain differences along the way that you can't get away from. But if there were things that would work in English that... They decided really had to be changed for the British one, but I could make it work in in, in the U.S. edition as well. I'd sort to of go back, so there's was constant back and forth. Um, you know how powerful are editors? It really depends on the on the house, and I think uh, more the the question more is how sensitive are editors? And that you know you can you can <clears throat> luck out wonderfully and have these great editors who really understand what you're trying to do, and will catch you on things. I mean, let's face it. You know, no text is perfect, whether it's your own writing or whether it's a translation. So I'm I'm very very grateful for editors who. I'm not even talking about, you know, mistakes or you know, you mistranslated this word, just like this doesn't sound quite right, or I'm not quite sure I get this, or you know, this could be tweaked a little bit more. And then there are others who just run roughshod and you know, and those you have to push back.
3: Yeah. I'll second that. I mm. love my editors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love mine. Uh, I'll even mention them. I have some wonderful people uh, making the things I've translated better. Uh, Dorothy Strait in the US and Mitzi Angel in the US, though she's now back in Britain, and Guido Waldman in the UK and Katerina Bielenberg. Are they, I don't know how these people are born or come <laughs> but these are people who can read a page with a pencil in their hand and find glitches that I, you know, these aren't things that I did in attach. And they're usually right. Every now and again, uh, sure. I disagree with yeah. them. Uh, so I, th- I think uh, th- there are few in number. None of them work for Routledge. Um.
4: Right. <laughs> <laughs> I figured
3: you had. Uh, um, no, I don't know. Um, but... Um, they do uh, provide English-language readers with very high quality, very well-produced books. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, to this uh, in huge contrast with France, uh, French books are not copy-edited, mm. full no, stop. No, they're, not edited. they're not edited. So it's not a question of the power they have. Uh, the publisher has all the power. The publisher has the rights. The publisher can publish what the publisher wants to. The editors are the interface and they are the best of them are really uh, wonderful handmaidens to the producing, you know, to, to making something smooth and, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. But I think um, it
6: also goes back to what you were saying before about the, the stature the translation has acquired, in, at least in English or the English language, uh, over the last few decades or however long it is. I think that the sensitivity to the editing of translations has also increased in the publishing industry. And I've certainly found it in the days that I was in trade publishing mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. You know, it, it was taken as seriously as... Mm-hmm as a text produced in English, and mm-hmm. if you're fortunate enough, you know, as I was to work in a place like Random House or Weidenfeld Nicholson or mm-hmm. Knopf or, you know, or houses that actually value and publish translations, yeah. their editors are also expected to, to bring that same kind of care and sensitivity.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I Actually, I, I, working with Northwestern, actually, I was mm-hmm. quite surprised to see what good editors I had uh, mm-hmm. run into. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I sometimes wonder if sometimes, if, if the, you know, the more commercial presses now are... Less careful, and maybe the smaller presses or university presses are more careful. I don't know. If I, uh, I don't think the big commercial presses are
6: publishing translations. Period. Yeah, By right. Large. I think it's yeah, the other it. way around.
4: Yeah. 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 Or yeah.
2: something. I know something is changing because I've seen a lot of. Yeah. You know. Well, I have an egregious example of editorial or publisher's intervention. I'm not exactly sure on what level it really took place, but um, Amos Oz's memoir *A uh, Tale of Love and Darkness*, which is you know over 500 pages long. And has something like 64 vignettes, mm-hmm. you know, each only a few pages each. Right. Um, I somehow heard, because I had read it in English, but I heard that there was one of the one of the vignettes had been deleted. So I was very curious about that and. My Hebrew isn't good enough to, you know, I mean, I, I could easily go and find the Hebrew and then figure out the numerically, but I went to the French translation, which is my strongest language. And I find the one that's missing, I read it, I'm very mystified by why it's been expunged, and I figured that there must have been some political explanation, you know, that made a lot of sense to me. But then when I thought about it more carefully, it, it didn't, it really didn't make any sense. And it's a meta-fictional chapter where it's a non-linear narrative anyway. The narrator, who's talking about his life, you know, I mean, it's not the narrator, it's the autobiographer, talking about his life, sort of steps out of the story and addresses the reader directly. And says, you know, essentially, you know, I know that you're really... Uh, in some salacious, purient way, interested in figuring out whether all of this is true or not. And you're probably lifting up every rock to find out, you know, did this happen or did this not happen and all that. Let me just tell you, that's not the point of this story. You know, there's truth and there's truth and you should be attending to what I'm writing and not to this other stuff, you know, because Israel is this tiny country and everybody knows everybody. So you just wanted to, you know, disabuse them of whatever, uh, you know, fantasies they may have had about discovering something it made no sense to me why they would delete that. And not only that, not only did they delete it, but then they renumbered, and you're talking about you know over 60, covered it over as if they'd killed somebody, covered it over <laughs> with dirt, there was no sign of it. So if you were reading the translation, you had no idea, at least the Anglophone translation, that they'd even done this. So I wrote to the, you know, I emailed the... Uh, I emailed the translator first, and then he completely you know he just sent me to the publisher and I asked the publisher well you know what is this about and why did you do it and is it only in English because I know it's not in French he said well out of all out of the 25 languages in which this book has been translated only in English both the British and the American editions was this chapter deleted this tiny little chapter for five pages so I asked well was it for financial reasons that doesn't make any sense you know No, not at all. It's for cultural reasons. What kind of cultural reasons? You know, Americans aren't very sophisticated readers. They always want mimetic, real life, you know, stuff. They won't know how to understand this. They won't know what to do with this. They'll be totally confused. They'll be alienated. And since Amosos has a very high critical, you know, high critical acclaim in the United States, but he's really not popular, we're trying to really bring him in. We want the market to, you know, recognize him and appreciate him. So we decided to just strike it and that way, you know, we're sure we'll get the kind of reception we want for him. Uh-huh. I was mystified. And, I mean, not just, but so shocked by that. So then I started to think, I bet it happens more often than not. Only you don't know it. You know, the crime is committed, but how do you know? There's no evidence left. What do you think? Is this more common than one might imagine?
6: Well, I mean, I guess the you know the, the, one of the great classic examples is Kafka. Um, yeah. You know, when, in the original translation, there were a number of elisions and a number of adaptations yeah. made to make it more palatable to um, to English language audiences, American audiences. But I think you know the the thing is that there's also um, you know it, it's I mean I, I don't defend it, but I as a publisher I, I get it. Uh, I, I don't understand that particular episode. I mean that to me seems just in terms of what they're trying to do and making the book more marketable sounds stupid regardless. Um, you know, but that aside, let's say that there were choices that were maybe a little bit more you know, understandable or a book was way too long and needs to be brought, there, whatever. Um, you know, you can argue it both ways, but I suppose that the publisher's um, real intention when you first bring out an author who is not known Um, which is not the case of Oz, Uh, but let's say a first book by someone that, you know, what they want to do is is impose this author, make this person known. And so, you know, the the cynical way of saying is well, they just want to make a lot of money and, you know, on the back of this author, but I don't think it's really that. um, I don't think it's quite that because no publisher, no literary publisher takes on an unknown foreign author thinking they're going to make a fortune. I mean, you know, they, they know better. It's not, that's not what they do. They do it because they love the book and they love the author and they want to make this person known in, in the, to, the, to an English language audience and so misguided or not, when these elisions or whether these changes are made intentionally, and I was waiting for the punchline of your story to be, oops, we, we forgot a chapter, we you know, which, which happens, which happens, um, but let's say, you know, in cases where it's actually intentional, um, you know, I, I think it actually is done with, with all the best will in the world. Now, it might not be the smartest choice and, you know, as I said, one can argue it both ways, but but I don't think it's done with any nefarious intent, and it's certainly not done for, you know, they're not going to save any money on those five missing pages. Yeah, exactly. uh, what they're really trying to do is to make an, uh, make an author who they uh, really do believe in work in, in English. And it could be smart, it could be not smart, it, you know, that,
3: that depends on the publisher. Yeah. Um, <coughs> two things. Uh, it used to be much commoner than it is now. Yeah. Translation contracts are now legally binding that it is a full translation, and publishers, by and large, legally bound to the holder of the head rights to produce a full translation. Yeah. And these kinds of things, don't in most possible. cases, would have to have the permission of, mm-hmm. of the author or his representative. Right. But uh, the actual tradition of translation into English Uh, is not like that at all. Les Misérables, you know the thing on Broadway, um, uh, in its standard US and UK editions from the beginning of the 20th century to the 1990s had the great essay on the meaning of the Battle of Waterloo, either completely omitted or in an appendix at the back for the obvious reason that English readers know who won the Battle of Waterloo Um, uh, I mean it completely changes the shape of the novel but that was the Misérable you had to read and it was done on she would well, I suppose we'd now call them ideological grounds, but it just seemed like common sense at the time. Um, that you, know, you don't really want to bore British readers with a Frenchman's essay on who won the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> um, you know, the rest of the book is exciting enough. Uh, it was quite common, and uh, many English novels, when they're translated into French and German, also have great chunks cut out of them. Uh, where it's uh, really quite tricky nowadays is... The extraordinary sensitivity of American publishers to legal issues about uh, uh, actual names of people, which are much more flexible and fluid in other literatures, Uh, uh, foreign novels and foreign novelists can um, attack, slander and libel all sorts of living people as long as they don't make any accusations about their sex life, which, of course, is the right to private life, in ways that cannot be done in English print. Mm-hmm. And uh, quite a lot of foreign novels have to be carefully amended to uh, conform to U.S. and British legislation on, on, on libel.
4: But this is also a problem with biography, for yes. example. I yes. Mean, you know, I, oh, I, yes,
3: yes. With whatever. biographies yeah. of uh, European yeah. writers, read the English version.
4: Well, I mean, when I was writing the biography of Manuel Puig, for example, I had to change the names of certain people. Mm-hmm.
3: Yep. Um, so that's yeah. A... So, I mean, because, because the laws are different, these things do get amended when mm-hmm. they cross from one to the other. Did, did you ever have a case of having to change names in a book that you translated? Uh, um, well, Because I did you did I did yeah um, i had lots of problems of that sort yeah. time. I'm not free to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't remember actually <laughs> but yeah no it's a constant worry it's a constant worry um, and, uh,
4: and you mentioned something which also really is interesting about uh, Les Miserables. I mean, uh, the, the, the question of, of adaptation is also a problem of translation, really. And uh, of course, immense pr- uh, changes happen uh, to literary texts and, and when they go into movies or, oh, or plays. Oh, of course, and, yes. that's, but that, that, and, and I think people should look at translation in, also in that light uh, mm-hmm. because you know, I don't know if we want to open it up to the audience at all, but does anybody have any questions? Or, I would love to. You know?
2: Somebody must have a question. Oh,
8: yes? yes? Would you okay. use the microphone? Oh, okay. First of all, first of, my name is Henry Earl. Um, I'd like to thank the panel for giving me some insight into a craft that I haven't thought about very much and certainly knew nothing about. I'd like to shift the focus slightly into the political realm, translation across boundaries, borders. Borders are closing. uh, But the speed in which things are translated across the political realm is perhaps quite dangerous. When the president of Mali makes a statement 30 seconds later, this will appear on CNN in English, and what kind of translation is allowed under those circumstances
6: i mean just you know political translation is not my not my strong suit but um, but it 's almost more interpretation that i mean what kind of translation is allowed at the u n you know uh, you, I mean, have, no. you have you um, have you have people who do simultaneous interpretation sometimes of very sensitive political statements and they need to be I would say in the best of cases you're talking about someone who is informed enough about the world situation about political situations to be able to represent at the very least the substance of what the president of Mali said to the English-speaking world in a way that is accurate. Um, of course the other thing about you know media now and, and CNN and other online things is I mean of course like everyone else I've been following the news for the last week on the on the Paris attacks and every day when I go in you know there are updates and sort of revisions and you know so it's not a it's not a fixed thing it's 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 very fluid unlike um, at least until very very recently unlike what we do which is literary translation which until the advent of online publication you know you did it you reworked it you revised it you, you edited it you went through the whole thing and then it was typeset and printed and at that point it's more or less written in stone if you were lucky enough and there was a second printing and your publisher was, was um, uh, you know an understanding fellow then you would be able to maybe make a few revisions if you noticed a couple of real clinkers that it somehow managed to get through the first time but that's about basically all it was um, you know whereas now you have this malleability and this ability to constantly yeah. revise and revise and revise. <laughs> so, you know, to answer your question, I suppose in the best of all worlds, someone who knows what they're, you know, knows what they're hearing, understands what they're hearing, is able to convey what they're hearing, mm-hmm. but also has the ability to to kind of understand the gist of it and kind of get the the the, the, the essence of it forward.
4: Yeah. 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 I thought you were actually going to bring up another issue, which is very political: is what gets translated and what doesn't get translated. Okay. I think that's a, an issue which I think yeah. we we're probably more <laughs> qualified to address, which I, I think, uh, I don't know if you want to bring it up, but that, I think that's a very interesting point. Uh, for example, uh, there was a time in terms of Latin American literature, and there's some fellow Latin American and Spanish translators amongst us here, so I don't want to say anything that's incorrect, but uh, the, um, when certain kinds of literature were favored over others. For example, magical realism you know, became this kind of cliche, and everything had to be magical realist. So any other kind of writer was not very interesting. you know. And uh, many wonderful writers haven't been translated, because they weren't magical realists. you know. So that's an example, I think, of a political situation, for example, in the Hispanic uh, context. But,
6: well, political you know, so. and economic, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean the economics obviously sure. is, is political, yeah, sure. but um, yeah. maybe not political in the sense of, you know, we want to censor the right. non-magical realist writers, it's but, just that we don't think
3: they're going to yeah, sell, so we're not, right. you know, we I don't, don't them. yeah. You know.
4: But it's the politics <laughs> of publishing. It's yeah. the yeah. politics what of publishing. What if I, yeah, I right. could
3: try and answer the question a bit more directly, because, um, um, I, I, um, I, I know it's not really something literary translators know much about, but I think it's, it's terribly important to understand how this works. Um, over in the UN building, sure, there is a cohort of extremely well-trained Uh, uh, very clever and hardworking professionals who are also extremely highly paid and belong to a union called the AIIC and Mm. um, uh, (laughs) we hope that they will be able to renew themselves and bring on the next generation but they're having some difficulty in doing that (laughs) unfortunately, no no, it's true um, it is getting difficult to staff the UN booths, unfortunately these extremely competent people spend most of their time interpreting stuff that is not very interesting because diplomats at the UN generally do not make history. Um, What you're talking about is something that doesn't go through that kind of a circuit at all. Um, The uh, world news media is an amazing phenomenon of non-translation. That is to say, the president of Mali makes a statement, a journalist reports it, and it goes through the wires to one of the six global news agencies that exist, AFP, PA, UPI, uh, the Deutsche Nachrichtendienst, and one other, I've forgotten the name of the uh, Latin American one, and instantly, and there it will be reissued by people who aren't translators, indeed wouldn't think of themselves as translators, but who are journalists working on one of the six language wires. Global news is circulated in six languages, and not really anymore to local news media and all this happens in the blink of an eye so that his statement appears in Farsi in Tehran and in Mandarin in Beijing and in English over here you said within 30 seconds actually it's six seconds is the lag uh, it's the generally accepted minimum lag um, uh, and I don't know whether to say it's marvelous or it's terrifying because in a way, it is marvelous that there is no cohort of translators translating the news. Mm-hmm. The journalists are all, all the people who work in these offices have the local i mean they have the language of the place they're in, and they have one of the six international global languages they hear in one language they give it out in the other without thinking um, you know just straight and that's how it then gets retranslated through these six pivot languages into all the other news languages of the world. Um, yes, things can go wrong. Uh, yes, a, 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 a false friend or a
8: right
3: uh, yeah, could start a war. Uh, yeah. it, it happened yeah. in any case. <laughs> the 1870 war between France and Prussia was yeah. sparked off by a mistranslation right. of the word adjutant.
4: Yeah. No, and I if you want
3: I'll tell you the story but anyway
4: those, those bloopers are great I, I, there was once a list in the paper of, a, of all these UN bloopers like you know Jewish, jurisprudence became Jewish prudence and yeah,
3: like yeah. Uh, <laughs> of course there are bloopers of course mistakes happen whether they happen more in the transfer between languages than in the stumbles and m- muffs people make when speaking their own language mm. because they do um, I mean you <laughs> don't have to look very far to think of people who well. (laughs) claiming to speak English said the wrong thing. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know whether you could ever measure that, but you know, it mustn't just say it's a problem of translation. It's a problem that actually communication is forever fraught with misunderstanding and uh, misperformance and mis-somethings.
6: yeah. And I, I don't know that we would necessarily want to say that the people who are doing this are not
3: translators. I mean, they might not be professional translators. Well, in they the don't pull that themselves. They,
6: translators no, and that's probably not how they make generous. their <laughs> well. There's that, uh, and not, not how they make their livelihood. But the fact is, as you said, they take it in one language and put it out in another because they're used to working between two languages yep. all the time. And probably, although not to say mistakes aren't made, but are probably better placed and better versed to give you a slightly more accurate, at least paraphrase of what it is that they're what it yeah, is that they're uh, taking and interpreting uh, because they, uh, that, they live in the situation. That's what they're
3: following. That's yeah, the yeah, yeah, story you know. they're following. The only time actual translators <laughs> get involved in the news is when some international star journalist like, a, 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 what's he called, Anderson Cooper, uh, oh. flies into somewhere in the world Addison to Addison report question. on it. There he will a professional translator. Oh, yeah.
4: yeah. I think we should call him Addison Cooper. Uh, well, there's uh, actually
5: an interesting during the <laughs> last week, um, I think a day after the what happened in Paris uh, Christian I was watching CNN and Christian Amanpour and Anderson Cooper were standing there and François Hollande came on and he started talking about what was happening and they couldn't find their translator. Hmm. It was fascinating because Christine, she can speak French and she was obviously, they were waiting for the translator to come and I was like, I wonder if they've gone to the loo or something. <laughs> they can't <laughs> find them in the building. Uh-huh. And That's it why you this always really have, to have to have two. This mm-hmm. awkward kind of thing where they were, they wanted to know what was happening and it was the president speaking, but they couldn't find anyone to translate it. It was yeah. a really wonderful oh. example of how important your, well, it's a your good your example I mean, staff, I the have, fact
3: that that know, sort of glitch is rare just underlines the fact that 99% of the news yeah. is not done that way.
5: Right. Mm. Yeah.
3: Uh, it's only with your media stars uh, that, that that ever arises.
8: What about uh, translations from earlier versions of English to modern English? I mean, Beowulf, thank God for Seamus Heaney, for example, uh, but. But uh, Canterbury Tales, the translations, in some sense, probably shouldn't be necessary. And now they're doing it with Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. You know, Come yeah. on. You know, well, well, what, what, what do you think about, about that, that kind of movement?
4: Well, I think it could be fun, but I don't, you know. Um, <clears throat> I remember there was... Um, I remember there was a famous poetry reading where uh, Allen Ginsberg read uh, this, To Be or Not to Be, Mm -hmm. you know, but in sort of like a Howell sort of style. So, man, to be or not to be, eh, that's a question, but, yo, you know, that sort of thing. So, so that's what you mean, sort of that kind of. (laughs) I don't know. It's
6: okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it, it actually points from, from a slightly different point of view. It, it points to one of the interesting <laughs> phenomena: is that you know the, the language of the translation keeps evolving and changing, but the language of the original, at least up to a certain point, stays the same. So that you know we can still read Shakespeare as Shakespeare wrote it, and most of us will get it. And you know we might have to look a few words up, or you might need a little gloss on the in the in the margins, but. You and the Canterbury Tales, you can, you know, I, I read it when I was in college, and, you know, you, you, you manage. Uh, Beowulf, maybe not quite so much, but, you know. But, um, but the translations of Shakespeare into other languages or, or of, or of uh, Chaucer are going to constantly evolve. And it's the same thing back. You know, if you try to translate, I mean, Montaigne is a, you know, is a great example. Of course, Montaigne's French now is moving slowly further and further away from contemporary French, although most French, you know, educated French people can read. It in the in the original, but well, you, no, you can. I mean, um, but the translations, you know, you can't translate it into the English of Montaigne's time because it was, that was John Florio. That's what he did, but it would sound very silly today. You know.
4: But I think that is what's wow. an interesting thing is that people often have you a relationship, disagree. a similar relationship to translations that they have to a so-called original, which what makes originals and translations very. Uh, interchangeable. For example, I, I remember the first the, tra- the first translation when I read Don Quixote in English translation. I I read it uh, uh, in Samuel Putnam's mm-hmm. version, and I just loved it. And I didn't like any version that came afterwards. And then I remember what Borges said. When he was very young, because uh, he lived in an Anglo-Argentine house, he actually first read uh, Don Quixote in English, and we read it in Spanish. He thought it was a lousy translation. <laughs> so I mean, you know, it's like a very relative thing.
3: Yes, I hardly sympathize with that. Yes. No. Yes, I think um, well, he's a little Nabokov, a little like Nabokov. No, so. no, no. I think, I think, <laughs> I think it is true that, uh, that translations in other languages can make alive texts from past ages um, in a way that is very difficult and, and contentious to do in the source languages. And uh, I, I know German students read Hegel in English translation. It's, it's actually easier because, you know, um, the, because translation is always up to a point explanatory and uh, Particularly with philosophical texts, translations always have footnotes too. So it's actually easier for the Germans to Hegel <coughs> in, in uh, English than in German. And up to a point it's true of Freud as well. Um, but is so that because the English is evolving? It's not so much because the English model; it's because the distance that translation gives you allows you to clarify, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and of course it's translated later on. It's always later, mm-hmm. um, so uh, I, I have absolutely no problem with Beowulf and Chaucer and Shakespeare translated into modern English. But I know other people do, and if they do, we'll learn French, and you know you can do you can get the same effect by reading French <laughs> of, of 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 making it present. Um, the really contentious one, though, that might interest you, is the translation of the Torah into Hebrew. Uh, that's a, yeah, it's, a, it's a project that's been going on for the last ten years, uh, causing a great deal of uh, conflict and disagreement, and people hot under the collar as to whether you can translate biblical Hebrew into modern Hebrew. Um, and it divides Israel, and uh, I think it's fascinating, because there, the, the well, you can imagine the issues are even more complicated than with Shakespeare or Chaucer. Mm. Yeah. And and the distance, and the distance much longer. Mm. Quite, mm. yeah.
5: I think it's also interesting knowing what the translator's intent is when they take the translation. I mean, he needs Beowulf, which I'm really glad I had to teach it for a few semesters, and, uh, you know, compared to the Beowulfs, I had to read, or the Beowulfs, I don't even know what translation was and when I did it, but it was very easy to teach, but... Heaney had a political project going on with his version of Beowulf, right, that he was very aware that he was a post-colonial subject coming to this great work of English literature, and he really wanted to open up the idea of this kind of hybridity in English I- English-British identity, uh, and even keeping some Hiberno-English words in the translation and so on. And I think once you know what Heaney's up to, doing it, um, you know, that makes it more interesting because it's obviously, it goes back to this idea of the translator as a reader as an interpreter, as an explainer of the text. It's not it's not the, the true Beowulf, it's it's mm-hmm. Heaney's Beowulf, you know, and I think that's what's fascinating, that mm-hmm. interplay between the translator and what they're up to and the context that they're translating in and, and so on with the text itself, I think is really fascinating. Yeah, there was a
6: similar case recently where a number of contemporary French novelists were asked to do books of the Bible, translate books of the Bible. And they don't read the original, obviously, but they, they sort of work from a crib, and then took that and kind of retranslated it into their own, their own idiom and their own voice as, as novelists, right. uh, and Eshinos being one of them, actually. Uh, it was a fascinating project. But of course, you know, it, it moves right. light years away from what we tend to think of as, as the right. Bible, but it, it's a great exercise.
7: Interesting. Um, I have a question, I'm not sure how to articulate it, but
4: I was noticing reading your brief bios that several of you are practicing translators also involved with biography, um, either of authors that you have translated or, and I'm just wondering sort of if you want to say something about the dynamics there. I mean, is is working on someone's text making, you know, you're entering into their lives somehow and need to really get at it in another way, or... Mm -hmm. Did the biography come first, and then you felt like you needed to translate more of their work? Just mm-hmm. some thoughts on that, I guess. Well, I mean, my only uh, work as a biographer was with Manuel Puig, and I actually knew him first as a translator. You know, and uh, he he actually was a very dear friend of mine, and uh, I knew him quite well. So, um, but I th- I think it's interesting the relationship between translation and biography because in some ways they're you know, they, they have things in common. I mean, they both have an original <laughs> that they're kind of competing with or working with or trying to deal with, you know? And so um, the biographer has, you know, and, and, and in the case of Puig, for example, his first novel was very autobiographical. I mean, uh, as a biographer, I felt very challenged. I mean, how could I do a better job on his <laughs> childhood than he had done in betrayed by Rita Hayworth? You know, it was a fabulous uh, autobiographical novel. So um, I think that some of the challenges are very similar between uh, translation and biography, and I, I do think that uh, um, I do think a translator, from my point of view, is at an you know I think it's a great position to be in to be the biographer, but there's also you know there's also problems of being too close to a subject as well. So it's, it has its pros and cons. Guys, um,
6: girls. Yeah, I mean, my, my one experience right. of, as as biographer is uh, André Breton, and right. I, I think I'm not. I don't entirely remember at this point, but I think I actually started working on the biography before I'd ever translated him. Uh-huh. Um, although I was translating, I translated several of his books during the course of writing the the biography, so there was this this overlap. Um, but I. I Completely agree with Joe, which is that the it's it's a it's a work of interpretation in either case, and mm-hmm. and a work of translation uh, into a different linguistic medium, whether it's you know the different language of of French to English or whatever it might be, or whether it's trying to translate the facts of someone's life and existence and thought into okay. prose on the page. Uh, and of course, remember that you know. In most cases, I mean, you were lucky enough to know Puig. I never knew Breton, He died when I was nine years old. Um, I think so, you're lucky, though. Yeah. Was, well, in some cases, I probably am. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, so so my experience of him is also off the page. It was through the writings and words of people who had written about him, had known him, you know, told me stories. I mean, all of that. But it's still through language, and right. t- it's it's a it's a it's a translation experience of filtering all of the all of those words into some kind of a narrative that then seems to have a you know that feels authentic. To me, from from what I've been able to to, to figure out, um, but the two definitely feed each other. Because, of course, as you know, as as we all know in translating, the more you translate a particular author, the more you feel like you're penetrating into that person's mind uh, through the words that they have written, and and it's the same thing with, with putting together the facts of a biography. That it, you know, it, it's it's a similar kind of journey, uh, mm-hmm. just the end product, the end product is different. That's all.
8: Mm-hmm.
3: In my case, uh, the, the biography of Perec that I did grew out of the translation in a very material, anecdotal way. In that, uh, when Life a User's Manual appeared, um, it was rather successful, in fact there was a little bit of a cult about it. Um, and people kept asking me, you know, "Well, tell us about Georges Perec, uh, you know, the author." And I, well, I don't actually know very much about him. Mm-hmm. And then this extraordinary. London publisher rang me up and said, "Well, why don't we write a biography of him then?" (laughs) Um, And so I said, "Well, all right." I'd never done anything of the sort before, but as I said, you know, doing the translation was already not very proper. uh, if, uh, where I was in the British system writing a biography was ab- absolutely anathema to my French colleagues because in France biography was not mm-hmm. held in high esteem <laughs> so I thought you know I lose one law, I might as well lose the other um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 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 per- uh, it was rather special because Perec had died only a few years before and he died rather young and his cohort so to speak his social cohort were men and women in their 50s and 60s so they were still around and there was a, it was obvious there would be a great deal of material uh, of a human kind, you know, people to talk to, and mm-hmm. things will come out of bottom drawers and so forth. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's how that arose. I mean, um, uh, but also, I mean, it wasn't just because I was egged on to do it, but because when the idea was put to me, mm-hmm. I thought, well, A, it's important this be done, as it were, from outside of France and not from anybody, you know, to you yeah. already connected. It. It's important this be done by somebody who actually knows the work of Peric. Right. and when you've translated a big book like that, you do know it. Right, <laughs> right. Um, and uh, I thought, well, you know, uh, there really is only me who fits that bill at the moment. Right, right. Um, and I thought it was also important to be done quite quickly before all the material dispersed or got lost mm-hmm. and so forth. So that's how that arose. The other okay. biographies that I've done have nothing to do with my work as a translator, but that, that first one did. Um,
4: and I think somewhat the impulse to translate and the impulse to write a biography can sometimes also be similar. Uh, I think in the case of Puig, um, that in, uh, I mean, in the case of translation, you want to bring a text, make it alive, bring it back to life in another language. In a sense you want to somehow resuscitate <laughs> yeah. a a person. And I mean obviously P had died so young and then Puig had also died tragically quite young. So yeah. and there was a way in which I don't think he was actually totally understood. So I really there was a way in which you really well, wanted to do put it s- right. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So there's uh, the impulse is uh, pretty strong, I think. Yeah. There's yeah. also
5: an interesting new phenomenon, which is the biography of translators. Yeah. Right, Barbara Wright, the book mm. on Barbara Wright, oh, and Michael yeah. Heim, and yeah. you know, so and how much that gives to kind of literary yeah. history, I think, is really interesting. And, and yeah, Michael yeah. Heim was that
4: ought to be a, a new genre. There.
3: Yeah, the lives yeah. of the translators, right. because we right. we know a little bit more now, but not a lot. I mean, yeah, there's yeah, a whole yeah. encyclopedia of lives yeah. of translators. Really? You Maybe <laughs> you're right. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I forbid if they do mine.
7: <laughs> Hello. Hello, my name is Alex I translate from Czech. Mm-hmm. And speaking of translators, um, I have a question that's bringing it more into the realm of how culture views translation and translators as humans doing this work. Um, there was a review of the new collected works of Primo Levy um, which was just published by Livrite. Uh, Tim Parks wrote the review for New York Review of Books and he himself translates and writes a lot about translation Mm. for that publication which is a leading intellectual publication in this country and somehow though he wrote a three-page review and mentioned not to mention the names of any of the translators in the the (laughs) review and there are ten of them so um, so that's interesting but but what's more interesting is that a translator wrote a comment on a blog post by Gregory Conti, who's himself an Italian translator. Gregory Conti pointed it out. A translator wrote a comment on the post about it. Tim Parks has now responded on that blog post. His first reaction was to be very defensive right. about the fact. And you know, you have a lot of reviewers who say, um, I only have a certain word count. I don't have room to put in the translator, a right. three page review. And the New York Review of Books can't make that claim, obviously. So I thought it was interesting that Tim Parks essentially um, made a similar claim saying, well, there are other things I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when he was pushed with with another comment from the translator on that blog post, his response was to denigrate the translations and saying well actually some of them weren't really that good Mm -hmm. and if I mentioned you know one translators name I had to mention another one if I talked about one I had to talk about the other and I really didn't want to say anything bad about them (laughs) so and I do recommend you know GregoryConti.com is a blog post it's worth reading and I don't know exactly what the response is to it but I'd like to know what what you think is a good response to that both as translators and as people who care about the role of Translation in our in our culture.
4: Mm -hmm. Very good question.
6: Uh, I mean, I think you know, if one wants to show respect for a translator, one should also point out where it doesn't work. Um, You know, I mean, I I get it. You know, three pages in the New York Review is a lot, but there's also a lot to say about Primo Levi. So he did perhaps didn't want to open that can of worms. But the fact is that, and and one could easily fill those three pages only on the translations themselves. you know, I don't know that you would have to go through every single one of the ten translators' works in detail to to make your point. I think just mentioning a few of them would have been sufficient. And I think it is it's a little disingenuous in this particular case because I know I know the editor who, who shepherded that project, but I also know uh, some of the translators. And the, you know, this was a big undertaking that I don't think all of them were retranslated, but most of them were or translated for the first time. So the translation aspect of it was. Even more important than with a standard, you know, a novel for which you find a translator and then and, and publish it, this was this was a, a project in which translation was part and parcel of the of the point because a number of those books had been available in English before some of them, and they had gone out of their way to retranslate them if they felt that the existing translation was not up to snuff. So, not to take any account of that on Tim Parks's part. Especially on the part of a translator, a practicing translator who's known as such, does seem a little bit, a little bit peculiar, you know. And I mean, you know, it's not like I want to say if if if, if you can't say something good, if you can't say something bad about something, don't say anything, but um, you know, but but you should you should um, you should be honest. you know, to to respect the work means to be honest about it. I'm sure some of the translations are very good, and some of them are probably a little less so, and we deserve to hear his point of view on both. No. Yeah.
8: Okay. Hmm.
5: I think also there's very limited vocabulary by reviewers when they're reviewing translations. It seems to be, you know, if they mention the translator, it tends to be the same three or four words yeah. right. that they use. Right. You know, right. yeah. Um, and you wonder, you know, because thinking about the translation is a way to reading it. You know, to thinking about the issues in the in the novel or the poetry or the biography or whatever. And I yeah. think it's a real pity. I think
4: there's, yeah.
5: I mean, there's a lack of language ability. No, I think. Yeah.
4: I mean, I think that's one of the. I mean, one of the genres that is at least. Uh, Favorable is, is, is the review, you know, right. in terms of dealing with translation. I mean, and, and, it, and when you do see a good review of a translation, for example, the, the New Yorker had a, a very good discussion, I think, anyway, of the Russian translations, right. you know, where they really go into the reasons of why they're thinking this and that about each trans- right. But then it's really interesting. But right. to say beautifully or Skillfully, or you know, or awkwardly, smoothly, fluently, enthusiastically. Oh, there's I've, a lot of adverbs. Yeah,
3: enthusiastically
4: <laughs> translated by.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean very well. Just yeah, because, but, right. but they really enjoy.
4: But it. I think that you know, it, it, you know, you need a very. Uh, A very knowledgeable reviewer, of course. And and most of the reviewers Mm -hmm. don't know the original original, language. Yeah, most of
3: the reviewers are probably taking an excellent opportunity to keep their mouths shut. That's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, But um, that's why I have these mixed feelings, because Tim Tim Parks is is quite the opposite, is that somebody who might even have been interesting as a commentator on the translation Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. from Italian, uh, since he's... Uh, well, maybe it's because he's jealous and he wanted to be one of the translators too and wasn't... All, I don't know. I mean, are all sorts of funny exactly. stories behind it. Um, well,
4: we are at a psychological clinic here. We yeah, are we? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
3: uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, like sometimes... Tim Parks might yeah, not right. work. <laughs> Sometimes when you're too it. close <laughs> to a project, you don't want to talk about it because it... You know, but um, uh, by and large... Uh, uh, I am pleased when books that I've translated are read as books and not as translations. I mean, Mm -hmm. they get reviewed by Mm -hmm. people who just take them for what they are. And I, I, of course, I'm very vain as well, and I'd love them to have a paragraph at the bottom pointing out how brilliant the translator is. But it actually detracts from the main point when you get a good review of a book. Um, It's not that... I assume all readers are allergic to translation. It's, it's that it switches the... Tone, mm-hmm. or the uh, you know the um, you know what the review is actually doing to get people interested right. in the book. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I speak with forked tongue. I feel very mixed on this.
4: It, it is. Yeah. It's very true. I mean, I, I remember once uh, you know John Updike never mentioned, except in certain cases, the, the the translator. But I remember I remember feeling extremely flattered when he when he reviewed a translation I did of Beuca Stars, where he talked about the style and quoted sentences. I said, oh wow, you know, I was mm. sort of like the little mouse under the look at that, you know. It was just yeah. that wonderful. It is true. Nice. I mean, we, we kind of complain
6: about the you know the the, the little adverb yeah. that we get. You know, the, the really right. the fluidly, but yeah. but yeah. when you get down to it, thank goodness for that, because normally speaking, if it's just a passing mention, that means all is well. When they do talk about the translations, nine times out of ten, it's in, in any detail is to go into how bad it is and all the mistakes you've made. So, right. you know, with, with very few exceptions. So in a way, I just assume it's I'll, an, I'll go it's with the it fluidly. It's bad <laughs> <right>, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I've, I've been informed that we're coming to the end of our time. So uh, unless somebody has something really um, that means a lot to them, I think, um, I think that's it, and thank you. Anyone? Yeah. Thank you very much. It was a really good program. Thank project. you for coming.